exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Divine light, pierce today's darkness with your dazzling love and reveal ways of being that share in your goodness even today. Amen. And please be seated. During the four weeks of Advent, we're going to be in a new sermon series titled An Advent of Womanist Vision. Breaking this title down, Advent refers to the first season in the church calendar. And so for those of you who were here last Sunday, the church year came to its end at this culminating feast called Christ the King Sunday. And so today, we begin the year anew. It's like January 1st for the church. Advent intentionally is set in the darkest days of a year, and it precedes the light of Christmas with a groaning and a yearning for this light to come and to shine. I think we felt that longing, that groaning for light when we all uh, fell back an hour and knew that it was going to be darker much earlier in our day. It's a season during which we intentionally cultivate hope in the midst of all of the darkness that we find around us in our world and in our very own hearts. So that's Advent. And then there's womanist theology. Womanist theology is a form of reflection that places the religious and moral perspectives of women at the very center of its method as it attempts to articulate Christian life. Womanist theology intentionally engages theological problems such as class, gender, and race. Furthermore, Womanist theology reimagines old religious language and symbols in order to give them depth and texture and hopefully relevance for life in the world today. As I understand it, womanist theology is a helpful corrective for the season of Advent, which is traditionally focused on male characters, except for, of course, Mary. But then again, especially in the Protestant church, Mary has been diminished for quite a long time now. And this is a longer story than we have time for today, but put simply, Mary got too big. Mary got too powerful. Mary got too influential in Christian consciousness. And so over time, she's been nearly extinguished by white Western male theologians in the Protestant tradition. But, But don't get me wrong. Advent today is filled with characters. They just all happen to primarily be men. For example, Joseph and Zechariah, the shepherds, the magi, and even the angels who are said to be male. All of these characters have become the focus of most Advent storytelling today. And yet, just to be clear, without women, there is no season of Advent. Can I get an amen? Amen. I mean, without women, we would not even be here. (laughs) 
This sermon series will therefore highlight women in the biblical account throughout the life of Jesus, primarily during the days surrounding his birth. And this sermon series will elevate their individual experiences and perspectives, which we hope, we deeply hope, will shine Advent light into the darkness that is often neglected in Christian imagination. Advent, womanist theology, and this brings me to vision. You see, within womanist theology, women without power, due to societal norms, they are resilient. For even without power, again and again, we bear witness to women who audaciously and unreservedly fashion spaces in their worlds which sustain and nurture life. And it's this life, which I believe we can rightly call light, it's this light that we intend to learn from throughout the season of Advent. A common phrase among our children when they were around the ages, I'd say probably like six, seven years old, maybe to 11, 12 years old, was not fair. (laughs) If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. Not fair, Asher had a friend over. Not fair, Phoebe had more screen time. Not fair, Miles gets away with stuff that I didn't get away with when I was his age. Not fair. I wonder when the last time was that you thought to yourself, not fair. Or maybe it's not fairness that you seek. Perhaps you're more interested in getting what you deserve. I remember turning 21, Jen and I had been married for just over a year. I was working in the middle of the night at UPS to help pay for some of our bills. About a year into doing that, I got a call from the church that I grew up in, and they said, hey, we have 12 kids, junior hires, high schoolers. We do not know what to do with them. Uh, If you come be their pastor, we'll pay you whatever you're making at UPS. I didn't even pray about it. I just said, yes. I was pursuing biblical studies. I was helping to pay bills by working so hard in the middle of the night. I get this call, and if I'm being honest, I thought to myself, yes, I was expecting that call. This is how life is supposed to go. You love God. You make the best decisions that you can. You commit to helping others, and and life just kind of works out for you. Can you feel where this is headed? Just a few weeks into my new job and just a few weeks away from my new health insurance kicking in, a stomach ache turned into open gut surgery. Uh, The doctors didn't call it that. That's what I called it. They actually cut me open and pulled stuff out and fixed stuff and pushed it back in and stapled me up. And uh, I was a week in the hospital and about $30,000 in hospital bills. And I thought to myself, how is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. I've done my best. I'm trying so hard to do what's right. I feel similarly about my mom. I mean, she wasn't perfect, but oh my goodness, married for almost 40 years, nine children, seven adopted, foster and shelter children in and out of our house throughout my entire growing up years, kind to all of our neighbors, serving in church, leading ministries, and dead from pancreatic cancer at 62 years of age. I don't think she deserved that. Not one bit. And so I'd like for us this morning to ponder a question. What isn't fair? What don't you deserve? Because I'm guessing that we all live with disappointment. But the disappointment for which we cannot control, like the disappointment for which we did not cause, the disappointment that deeply and even tragically impacts our lives, I don't know about you, but for me, that is the pill. That is the bitter pill that is hard for me to swallow. A dream job, a child, 
a relationship, a holiday, a pandemic. As much as we want to control our lives, we actually have very little control. I remember a few years ago reading an article about a woman who was just vibrant and healthy, and she just turned 100 years old, and so the local newspaper was sent out to interview her, and they asked her, what is your secret to longevity? And she heartily declared, daily whiskey and boiled onions. <laughs> what does that even mean? How does that lead to long life? COVID-19, then the Delta variant, and now a possibly worse variant called Omicron, just as things were once again beginning to feel better. Which is to say, just as things were returning to how I expect life to go. And all of a sudden, it feels like we're on the brink of even more difficulty. Not fair. Certainly not what we deserve. At least that's how I often feel. And yet I'm beginning to realize that ideas such as not fair and not what I deserve are primarily the concerns of people who have known power and privilege. And I don't mean to make anyone feel bad here. I'm just saying that not fair is most deeply felt by people who have known fairness, only to lose it. Similarly, the notion of this is not what I deserve is, is often, uh, often rises from a life that has experienced getting what is believed to be deserved. And we can scream and we can fight and we can attempt to use our power and privilege to change our circumstances, and, and that is a very common response. And yet, what if power and privilege are unable to change every difficult or nonsensical circumstance that we experience? Well, it's here in this very place that womanist theology begins to sing its song. Not because women have had all the power and privilege, much the opposite, in fact. Women have been unfairly subjugated and undeservingly misused and abused throughout millennia. And you see, it's this experience by, wisdom, by women that roused a concern that is much different from many of our contemporary concerns today. Because... When fairness and that which is deserved are foreign to human experience, the options become dire very quickly. It's really either or. Either live my life bitter by my unchangeable circumstances or learn to live well within my unchangeable circumstances. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that evolution and shifting social mores and progressive agendas and ever-increasing rights for those who have had few rights is not needed or necessary. Change and progress are both deeply needed and necessary. But if we're being honest, revolution takes time. And it's during this time waiting for revolution that womanist theology rises like a piercing light in the darkness to declare Life can be lived now. Goodness can be experienced today. Now, I don't know about you, but after five years, five very long years that have included Trump and obvious signs of climate change and awakening to horrifying racism and a never-ending pandemic, I am realizing probably for the first time in my life outside of my stomach issue and my mom's death, that my power and privilege have not prepared me to live in this world. I felt that in new ways. And if I'm being real honest, not fair, and I don't deserve this, are becoming less helpful by the day. In fact, 
I'm finding that such thinking only seems to inflame more and more bitterness inside of my soul. Is there another way to perceive of this life? Is there a more profitable way to live this life? Elizabeth says, oh yes, come. Come sit around my table for a while and learn from my experience. And so, the story of Elizabeth. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Elizabeth is the wife of a priest named Zechariah. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Elizabeth is the relative of Mary, who is to be the mother of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Elizabeth is a descendant of the great high priest Aaron. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that Elizabeth is righteous and obedient to the laws of God. I mean, Luke is going out of his way here to give us Elizabeth's resume, and it does not disappoint. She checks off many of the first century Jewish ideals. Married, check. And to a priest, double check. (laughs) Married, check. Connected, check. Related to Mary, the forthcoming mother of Jesus. That's a double check. Bloodline, check. Aaron, we're told, is her forefather. Double check. And righteous, check. Luke writes that she is upright in the sight of God and observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Blamelessly. Double check. And so what is fair? What does Elizabeth deserve? Well, according to Jewish tradition, a woman like Elizabeth deserved many, many blessings. And the greatest blessing in her time and day would have been a child. Make that many, many children. And yet Luke tells us that Elizabeth was barren and well along in age, which is biblical code for a curse. In Elizabeth's time and day, barrenness would have been looked upon as a kind of curse. And about these circumstances, we are left to imagination. How did these circumstances affect Elizabeth? Was she doing all of the right things in hope that she might yet have a child? Was she bitter and cynical, believing that life makes no sense and certainly no promises based on her own experience? Had she given up just passing time until her difficult journey ended? These are the kinds of questions that rise from a person who abides in a world, in a system in which people get what they deserve. But you see, this was not Elizabeth's world. In Elizabeth's world, life, capital L, life, didn't seem to appreciate her righteousness. And for now, that's all that Luke tells us about Elizabeth. And yet there are clues as to how these circumstances affected her. As the story continues, Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah the priest, is on duty in the temple when he's visited by an angel who says to him, Elizabeth is going to have a child, and you're going to name that child John. Infamously, Zechariah doesn't believe the angel, and so he's told, hey, you're going to remain mute. You will be unable to talk until all of these events take place. Fast forward several months. We bear witness to an old and now very pregnant Elizabeth. Think about that with me for a moment. This old and now pregnant Elizabeth, who has been married for the majority of her life, who has tried over and over and over and over again to have a child, and who has very likely prayed and pleaded and begged God for a child. This now old and pregnant Elizabeth is visited by Mary. 
And I don't think we pause here long enough to think about how wild and awkward this moment would be. Mary is Elizabeth's very young, non-married, non-sexually active relative who is actually pregnant. You could kind of say living Elizabeth's dream that didn't happen until the very end of her life. And so how does Elizabeth respond? In my mind, a little contempt seems somewhat appropriate, doesn't it? From Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39, In those days Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to my house? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leapt for joy. Isn't that a beautiful response? I mean, in my mind, from a place of privilege and power and expectations and and believing this or that is fair, uh, jealousy and bitterness and stinginess and competition and, and contempt seem very, very normal. And yet for Elizabeth, there is no jealousy, no bitterness, no stinginess, no competition, certainly no contempt, just blessing and joy for her young, pregnant relative, Mary. Now, here's where I give you three ingredients to being more like Elizabeth. Just kidding. (laughs) There are no ingredients to becoming just like Elizabeth. It's more complex than that. I have no idea how Elizabeth had the capacity to celebrate her young relative's good news in the midst of her own difficult journey. And when I say that, I want to caution us from dismissing Elizabeth's response with ideas like, well, she was able to be generous because she's finally with child, right? So, so she's finally gotten what she wants, so now she can be generous. That's just not how the text reads. Nowhere in Luke's telling is Elizabeth bitter or angry before, during, or after having a child. And besides, I'm guessing that Elizabeth had dreamt a lot of dreams about what her pregnancy would look like if she were to ever get pregnant. And I very much doubt that 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 dream did not include a mute husband for her entire nine months. Or maybe that was a blessing. I'm (laughs) I'm fairly certain that it didn't include getting pregnant near the very end of her life as opposed to the beginning of her life. I'm pretty convinced of that. You see, the thought that Elizabeth was able to respond to Mary's pregnancy with joy because Elizabeth herself was finally pregnant is an idea that rises from people of power and privilege who struggle to perceive joy outside of getting what they expect and feel like they deserve. But that is not Elizabeth's world. At a 1993 womanist conference named the Reimagining Conference, the great womanist theologian Dolores Williams was asked about the theory of atonement. Like, what do you think about this theory of atonement? Jesus hanging on a cross and shedding all of his blood. And she replied, I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. I think we really need to see the sustaining, the sustenance images, the faith that we are to have. I think we need the fish and loaves, the candles we are to light, that our light will so shine before people so that we can remember that this message that Jesus brought is about life. And it's about the only two commandments that Jesus gave, about love. 
I really appreciate her second sentence. I think we really need to see the sustaining, the sustenance images. I think we really need to see the sustaining, the sustenance images in life. Looking at Elizabeth's life through the lens of womanist theology, which purposely seeks out sustaining sustenance images. Perhaps it's not too much of a leap to say that Elizabeth was able to respond to Mary's pregnancy with joy because of her own barrenness. Because of her own barrenness. She had come to elevate these sustaining images of any pregnant woman in her world. Now, I know that's kind of a, a mind bender, so stick with me here as I try to make sense of this idea that I'm trying to articulate. A, a privileged person bitterly compares the gains of others with their own sense of lack, believing that it should be in their power to get what they deserve. But a womanist who has little power and privilege, who has known sorrow, who has experienced barrenness, that person is so overwhelmed by the horror of that which they lack that the good gain of others may actually become a salve, a gift, not just for the pregnant person, but for the entire world. Can you feel that difference just a little bit? I don't think I could until the last few years. And to be clear, I'm not trying to compare my difficulties with Elizabeth's or with women or with people of color or with the queer community. But in saying that, I've also been learning not to diminish my own pain in light of other people's pain because that's not good for anyone. Comparative suffering does not produce good fruit in any person's heart. Every person's pain and loss and disappointment, every person's experience of barrenness is terribly and tragically real. Now, and please don't throw tomatoes, but perhaps this is the light in today's Advent. We, people who are used to power and privilege, are realizing more and more that control, that control is actually a myth. I mean, we may control chaos for a time, but I think we've all learned that we do not actually control the lives that we live and the world within which we live. And again, to be clear, I'm not saying that evolution and shifting social mores and progressive agendas and ever-increasing rights for those who have had few rights is not needed or necessary. Change and progress are needed and necessary, but revolution takes time. And it's during this time, the in-between time of revolution, that womanist theology rises like a piercing light in the darkness to declare, life can be lived now. Goodness can be experienced today. And that goodness, according to Elizabeth's story, may not actually be our own goodness. Sometimes that goodness may actually belong to someone else. But you see, their goodness is truly our goodness. From a woman's perspective, a vaccine available for them, not me, that's still good, very good. A COVID surge controlled in that country or by that state, but not in my country or in my state, that's still good, very good. That healing from cancer, that healing from pain, or that new job, or that retirement, or that vacation, or that relationship, or that child, or that life in another person's life is good. It's all good, very, very good. 
not for people of power and privilege who think they're in control. This only makes for bitterness when life doesn't go as it ought. I'm putting quotation marks intentionally around ought. But for those who are desperate for good, thirsty for good, longing for light in the midst of all that is dark, well, it's there, it's then that any person's good will do, even if it isn't our own. And perhaps suckling on the good of another can meaningfully sustain us for just one more day. What if that's our only light during this season of Advent where everything seems to be turning in all the wrong directions? After Elizabeth had her child on the eighth day, it was time for the child to be circumcised, and everyone expected that he would be named after his father, Zechariah. But because Zechariah was still mute, Elizabeth declared on behalf of God, in accordance with the angel's direction, no. No, he is to be called John. John. The name means graced by God. Isn't that beautiful? Graced by God. Not when all of our dreams come true and not when we get exactly what we want or feel as though we deserve, but graced by God in every moment of darkness during which we bear witness to sustaining sustenance images in the lives of others, maybe even total strangers. It's a bright light named Joy that sings along with Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, verses 42 and 43. Blessed are you. Why am I so favored that your good should be witnessed by me? And let us pray. Divine light, pierce today's darkness with your dazzling love and reveal your goodness to us through good in the lives of others. Not for us to compare with our own lives, but for us to merely hold up, to point at, and to declare with unadulterated joy, good, that is so good. Help us throughout this season of Advent to see all that is good and to sing its praises. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.